0: Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by TAG partner, Ambassador Kurt Tong. Another Kurt, it's going to be confusing, but we'll do our best. He's stepping in for Rich
1: Furman today. Kurt, welcome. Hi, Kurt, Um, and hello to our listeners and viewers. It's really great to be here and We're very excited to be joined by a a very special guest today. That's absolutely right. We are pleased
0: to be joined by
1: a colleague and
0: friend, Wendy Cutler. She's Vice President and Managing Director of the Asia Society Policy Institute in the Washington, D.C. office, one of the global experts on trade, brave, intrepid, visionary, and she's very much looking forward to discussing a new report about the future of trade.
1: Kurt? Wendy doesn't need so much of an introduction, but she did have a distinguished career in public service and significant experience working at USTR, the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, um, particularly handling Asian nations. And she rose to the point at at the end of her career of acting as the number two in that organization. She's also the the author of a recent report that we'd like to talk about today titled Reengaging the Asia Pacific on Trade. A TPP roadmap for the next US administration. And we're happy to talk about that today, but I also think that everyone should read it.
2: Thanks, Kurt. So we're just going to get started. Wendy, welcome. It's really my pleasure to be here with both Kurt and Kurt, and I look forward to the discussion.
0: Great. So, look, before we got started today, we talked a little bit about what an incoming agenda on foreign policy, national security might be, Wendy. And I think there is a broad general agreement. Let's just say, If Vice President Biden becomes President Biden, one of the foundational points that he and his team have made is that we're going to talk more and listen more to allies and friends. And for those of us who've been out on the front lines, you on trade, KT on economics, on diplomacy, across the board, I've done a little bit on diplomacy. The first thing that you hear from allies and friends in Asia is what's your trade strategy? If we open up a dialogue with the Asia-Pacific friends, what do you think we're about to hear in the conversation about what's next for the United States?
2: Well, I think one of the first things we're going to hear is a real receptivity from our allies and partners about the U.S. becoming more engaged in Asia, specifically um, for my purposes of the discussion today, in the economic and trade areas. And um, in the report that you mentioned that the Asia Society just published on re-engaging the Asia Pacific on trade, I interviewed a number of current and former TPP officials. And one of the first things I heard is, you know, we would really welcome you back into the TPP or just back into trading relationships with us. I think they feel that for the most part, we have retreated. We obviously left the TPP very early in the Trump administration, but we really haven't done a lot to lead the region on trade, either in APEC or in the WTO or in any type of kind of regional trade agreement.
0: So there have been a lot of discussion around Washington, mostly in democratic circles, about the way forward. Some have suggested that, you know, at the outset, put trade on a back burner. And I think you've pointed out before and in previous discussions, you know, it's hard to do, trade finds you. You can't simply just say we're going to wait. But that certainly is one point of view. There's another point of view is to say, well, let's do some exemplary bilateral uh, agreements. I think some economists point out that not clear how helpful those are and, you know, they don't necessarily translate into a broader agenda. Some have suggested let's do something in a different arena, something like electronic commerce or like, and and so others have suggested let's try some sort of repackaging and approach to uh, to TPP. But I think the the real issue is how much carefulness there has been generally in the public discussion about it. What do you think, Wendy? How do you you know how do you see these various voices? How, how do you think it's going to play out over time?
2: Well, I don't think we're ready for a big new trade agreement right now. I think we have domestic homework to do, frankly, to build support for trade, to put in measures to really take care of those who've been left behind to increase our competitiveness, and also really to figure out what we would want in a trade agreement. I mean, things have really changed over the past four years. The U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement Um, in many ways, resembled TPP, but in other ways included some really novel and controversial provisions. So I think we need to sort through all that. But as we do that, I think there's a real opportunity for us to identify certain narrower issues, whether it be digital trade, whether it be medical supply chains, whether it be climate change and trade, and start with something narrower. And I think this would help us really build trust among our allies and partners, particularly in the Asian region, and also to build momentum for a trade agenda.
1: Yeah, what do you think would be the receptivity from our our friends overseas to to that kind of more topic specific agenda? Do you think they'll be satisfied with that or are they gonna try to, to demand something
2: more? Well, I think it depends how we present it. If we told them that maybe we'd be interested in something broader, but we're going to need time, maybe they would see the benefits. Let's try and do something narrower. And frankly, some of these narrower agreements wouldn't necessarily need congressional approval so we could put them into place um, much quicker and we could see the impact more quickly. And one of the reasons why I suggest digital trade or medical supply chains or climate change type issues, these are all issues that have become even more important, you know, with the COVID situation, frankly. And so I think all many countries are focusing on these issues now as they think more broadly, but also as they think about trade.
1: You know, you, you kind of touch on it when you raise Congress, but in all those interviews with these counterparts, your old friends trading from our major trading partners. What was the tenor of the conversation? Were they angry? Were they disappointed? Were they just happy that you're you're still doing okay? I mean, what was the the what was and, and how do they do they trust us?
2: Well, you know, that's a great question. And what I sense was just a range of different emotions that they went through over particularly those first few months when we left TPP, from like shock to surprise to being lost to anger. But then what I think happened is as they met together without us, they developed their own confidence and they figured out they could work without us. So I think as we try and re-enter these types of discussions, in some ways, we're going to have to earn our way back.
0: Wendy, I, I'm I'm curious, you know, one of the things that we always say, and we've had some friends on our podcast that have talked about trade, and they, they often talk about domestic homework and not only retraining programs, things that we've done poorly, particularly compared with European friends in Germany and others who've done much better at this kind of you know, thinking through the consequences of trade more generally. But I I sometimes wonder if some of the discussion about trade has hardened and whether it's possible really to convince people. I, I find that in some of the discussions that I have with opponents of trade, they're not particularly open to repackaging and explaining why, you know, the vast majority of the markets for American products are abroad I'm struck by how hard it is. And I guess my question to you is, and if you really believe, as I do as well, that the main battleground for trade is not the negotiation of the deal externally, but convincing the domestic audiences, is that going to be possible in the environment going forward? And just if I can build on that, the other thing that's interesting is that you've got now trade skeptics in both parties, both Democratic and Republican parties. How does that play out?
2: Well, I I couldn't agree with you more. It's a very hard, tough conversation. I've had a lot of them through my years at, at USTR and now at the Asia Society. So just coming up with great talking points and saying trade is great isn't going to work. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try and do that more. And in a strange way, I think Trump's tariff wars have really underscored how important trade is for our economy because many people who didn't really know about trade are feeling the effects of tariff hikes. But in another respect, I think that if domestically through domestic programs, we were doing more to address the concerns of those left behind, we were dealing more with the inequalities and distribution of wealth, that would take a lot of pressure off trade agreements. Trade agreements are not designed to take care of every economic problem. They, you know, they have a role to play, but they need to be complemented with domestic measures that are more suited to address those concerns.
1: One of the things that always concerned me about Sort of trade adjustment assistance is that it—it's almost admitting that trade is bad for some people, and therefore we need to help them out in adjusting to the disruption caused by external competition. But is there—is there another way to explain the—the the value of international commerce, you know, towards job creation? And like, I know administrations have tried to do this before, but they've generally failed, and then fallen back on. Well, we need these trade agreements for relationship reasons. And is there a, a magic formula for the Democratic Party to somehow capture the imagination of the of the country on international commerce?
2: Well, I wish I had the answer to that, but I think part of the problem is first of all, it shouldn't be called trade adjustment anymore. It's really adjustment to the new world we live in, right? Mm-hmm. So if you limit these programs to having show you've been injured by trade when studies show a lot of technological advancements are uh, really play a much larger role in worker displacement. Second, the the bar and the the criteria for getting these funds have been very high um, and very extensive. And so I think the title trade adjustment assistance just doesn't make sense anymore. Mm-hmm. What we're really talking about are like rebuilding our skills for the next century. Right. So some of it is packaging, some of it's just changing the name of that program, and frankly, integrating a lot of the worker programs we have all around the government and really upping the game on those.
1: And this has a lot to do, of course, with what the education agenda is for the country. And is it focused on job skills and community colleges, or is it more always, you know, focusing more on younger people um, before they're entering the job market?
2: Correct. But to be effective, we need to be doing both. (laughs)
1: Wendy, uh, what I liked about your report
0: was that it didn't shirk a lot of these questions and went directly at them. And it made, I think, a powerful case against really uh, what you effectively describe our substantial headwinds. I do, I do want to just get you to comment a little bit. One of the things that you hear occasionally on the left is this idea of, I, I don't want to say that it's a stopgap effort, but this kind of electronic commerce kind of potential arrangement. Could you describe for those of us who, you know, don't who aren't as deeply embedded in the details, what's attractive about it? Is it standard setting? Why would we do it? What would be the benefits? Could you just take a couple of minutes on that for us?
2: Sure. And these negotiations in the WTO, for example, they're called e-commerce. If you look at some of our free trade agreements, those chapters are called e-commerce. But I think a better title now is really digital trade. And digital trade is just becoming more and more important and a larger chunk of trade overall. And what you learn in trade negotiations, it's easier to set rules as new sectors and new type of trading arrangements emerge versus trying to set those rules once everyone's system is in place. And so when we look at you know digital trade agreements, for example, the free flow of data is extremely important. Um, we recognize you know, there are privacy considerations, there are national security considerations, but for companies big and small to do business They need data to to be able to flow between borders. So that's like an important component. And what's so important about digital trade, and I think COVID has shown this, is that small and medium-sized enterprises, if you want to do something for those smaller enterprises and not just US small and medium-sized enterprises, but those in Southeast Asia and all around the world, um, if you want to help women in trade all those digital tools, that's where it's happening now. That's how they can reach their customers. That's how they can market their products. And now more and more, that's how they're getting payments for their products. So if you talk about an area that's just exploding, has become more and more important in the COVID world, it's not just goods, it's now services as well. We've seen digital education, digital telemedicine, Um, and many other sectors moving to the digital world. So I think there's enormous opportunities there. And now is the time to work with like-minded countries to set the rules and set the standards so we don't end up with a system that's just going to work against not only big companies, but more importantly, small companies who who are going to rely increasingly on digital trade in their business models.
0: So let me ask one other question and over to Kurt for a couple. So there is some discussion when it comes to orienting a strategy towards Asia about what's the appropriate gathering mechanism. So there there have been some that have suggested that the model of the G20, the size of economies, their importance on the global stage, that's what you've got to formally address and that's what you've got to work on. Others are suggesting that values like organizing around countries with shared values are gonna be that's gonna be the key mechanism on the way forward and trying to align some elements of a of a democracy value-laden foreign policy with economic agenda could be the way forward. Others are saying, let's focus not just on the size of the GNP, but leading indicators. In certain markets, and that who's prepared to accept some, you know, framework to to go ahead, and others are saying, "No, hey, look, you know, let's let's look at the collection that we had on TPP, which is disparate and and oriented more around, you know, who raises their hand." I, I know that's a long question, but I think you know what I'm getting at, Wendy. How how as you're if, if you were starting from a relatively clean slate just a fresh, you know, piece of paper. How would you go about doing this going forward?
2: You know, when I, and I've been reading a lot about all these, you know, these, these proposals or ideas about just different configurations in terms of bringing countries together. Um, one thing I've learned in my career, number one, it's it's easy to create new institutions. It's hard to get rid of them and it's hard to keep them alive and vibrant and interesting. So for example, I remember when the G20 was created and everyone thought this was incredible, this was going, you know, this model was going to be the answer to all our problems. And now it's just become, I think, less and less influential. And frankly, you know, read their COVID statements, particularly on what they were going to do with respect to economic recovery and, you know, helping with the health crisis. It was pretty weak, I thought. Mm -hmm. Um, So This has led me to believe that we need to be very nimble and ad hoc, look at the problem we're trying to solve at hand and then figure, is it best to solve that problem in the context of an existing organization? Do we need to establish a new ad hoc coalition? Or is it something we should work on bilaterally, but at the same time, work that issue regionally uh, you know, the more and more I look at this question, I just think being nimble and flexible and focusing on the outcome we want and then deciding what should be the configuration of countries in terms of getting there.
1: Mm-hmm. Let me then ask about our, our favorite old organization, APEC, Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation, right? It, <laughs> it's, it is a organization that gets a lot of the right people together. On a regular basis, to in the same room when there's no um, pandemic, to talk about things. But it's definitely not a, a gathering of the like-minded, per se. And is there utility in that organization or others like it? That that how can we do more and get more stuff done in in those kinds of settings? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, first, let me just say how fondly I I, I view APEC one of the most fun um, parts of, of my job and working with both Curt and Kurt when the United States hosted in 2011, I thought was a real remarkable year for APEC in terms of our ability to get stuff done. But for APEC, I, I, what I've seen through the years is a lot depends on who's hosting it, how many resources they're putting to it, not only just money or, or staff, but really intellectual resources. And so I think it's an organization. We've just seen you know, many ups and downs. And frankly, I think the U.S.-China dispute has kind of spilled over into APEC in many areas, which is unfortunate. But that said, I do think it's an organization that's important to try and keep intact going forward. One of the organizing principles of APEC was this was a group of kind of countries that understood the value of trade and trade liberalization. And so that really helped APEC kind of establish its credibility and really push the World Trade Organization key points in very difficult negotiations. I think the key now is to find issues that we can move in APEC where we're not at loggerheads with China, because I think when that happens at APEC, as we've seen, I think, in the past few years, we spend a lot of time just arguing about what's in a statement versus trying to get practical stuff done and trying to kind of move forward issues in a way in a more comfortable environment for other economies, as they're not being asked to make binding commitments in a trade agreement, which may subject them to dispute settlement.
0: When I just you mentioned this, but so as you think about a trade agenda. Many people now are talking about trade really as kind of a defensive measure, that you try to create an operating system that presents a kind of challenge to how China proposes to conduct trade with states in its uh, vicinity. And I, I understand that, and I think we understand, all of us understand the dynamics of that, I do wonder, though, Wendy, if you were master of the universe, what what do you think the trade agenda between the United States and China is? Right. So I think we understand some of these other dimensions, but like, is there a bilateral? Clearly, there's been no discussion of the bit, and I don't think has anyone's talked about that in a long time. Phase one deal has fallen woefully short. I, I think phase two is just you know over the. Turn of the Earth, you can't even see it out there. What's the agenda going forward now? Do you, do you, you know, lift sanctions? You know, what what do you do? What's the game plan?
2: Wow, well, you asked tough questions. I sure wish I knew the answer to that. Um, I don't think we should give up, but I am pessimistic because China just doesn't seem open to discussing issues that we put off, frankly, for the phase two negotiation. And even with hundreds of billions of dollars of tariffs we put into place, China was still unwilling to discuss industrial subsidies, curbing them or establishing a level playing field between state-owned enterprises and private sector companies. Those are really the core issues we're gonna need to find some accommodation with, with China going forward. But I think those issues lend themselves much more to working with other countries and then working with those other countries to discuss what would the carrots and sticks be to try and bring China into such a negotiation. I mean, right now, China can sit in the World Trade Organization and say, the existing rules are fine. We're abiding by all the rules and thank you very much, but we don't want to change any of the rules. We need to change that dynamic. And I think obviously the U.S. just working alone here hasn't been able to change that dynamic. So I think we're going to need to kind of augment any bilateral overtures to China with trying to work together and not just with the EU and Japan, but with other countries as well. We really need to widen that net. And I think we need to do that at senior levels, but we need to do it in a respectful way that really takes into account their concerns and their trading relationships with these countries and we don't kind of set ourselves up for failure or for setting our expectations so high that they just disappoint us.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to go back to the digital trade thing and and then add in China. So China's maybe the world's largest economy, digital trade is an increasingly important part of trade, but when most Americans hear data and China in the same sentence. They're scared that there's either thought control or some or a, a national security threat involved. There is there a should we give up on having digital trade with China or is there a way to 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 accomplish it and and make it you know work well and but not scare the heck out of Americans
2: you know again i think it's worth exploring an accommodation because i don't think all data needs to be restricted i don't think all data just because it's from china or it goes to china has national security implications we need to do be a better job in the united states to kind of sort that out and frankly i think you know this recent development with wechat and tiktok i think demonstrates that we don't have our act together on this we went we quickly just announced a ban. We gave the Commerce Department forty-five days to kind of work this out in terms of how this this a- application ban would be administered. They did so, and then you know it's now in courts, and the courts are not you know siding with the administration. So I think you know this is the area like digital trade, and it's part of that and the whole issue of data. We really need to kind of sort through that and understand or, or or before we go ahead and say all data you know any data agreement or anything dealing with data with China is bad we need to figure out is it all bad and if it's not all bad how do we distinguish between bad and good
1: yeah you know we're I know realize we're running up on time but I'm sitting here today with two of the best people that I've ever watched negotiate with other countries you have the two of you have Different styles. I want to concentrate on Wendy's today. I mean, how would you characterize? I, I use you as an example in class for
0: um, Wendy. Just so you know, these are shots at me. Okay, so she's, these are don't don't this don't be fooled by any of this. Let's it's,
2: watch me in please, some bad moments. Please too. go ahead,
1: Kirk, Go ahead. Well, Wendy, how would you characterize your negotiating style and, and approach to getting stuff done with counterparts?
2: And It clearly evolved over time. I think when I was younger, I wanted to fight every battle with every country. And Over time, I learned that you really need to focus more on what's really important, what's going to make the difference. I've spent a lot of time trying to establish relationships with my counterparts because I recognized early on watching other trade negotiators that a lot of the action doesn't take place in the formal setting of a trade negotiation in that big room with all the cards um, and all the microphones, that it's basically those side conversations. And if you can build trust with your counterpart, then those quality of those side conversations, I think, increases dramatically. So I have tried hard on developing those relationships. I've had some success, some great counterparts. I've also had other counterparts that have actually had their bosses complain to the state department how awful I was so I've been through all of it but I really feel over time and particularly when I look back on my career negotiating with korea for the original chorus agreement and then the first revision under the obama administration as well as working so closely with japan on on tpp i had excellent counterparts there and by being able to develop a trustful relationship but still clearly recognizing we're both, both were trying to advance our own national interests. But nevertheless, I think we were able to bring those agreements home because we had um, not only had developed a trustful relationship and can explore solutions, but also in those negotiations, both countries wanted to be at the negotiating table, right? They decided for their own reasons, They wanted to be in TPP or they wanted a bilateral agreement with the United States. I think that dynamic in a trade negotiation is so much easier than when I look at, for example, I think those China phase one negotiations or some of those negotiations with Japan in the early 90s. I mean, those Japan didn't want to be at the table. China didn't want any part of this phase one negotiation. And so, you know, those negotiations have a different dynamic. Yet, I would still assert that developing, you know, good, close working relationships, trustworthy relationships help move a negotiating forward.
0: Winnie, last question, and then we'll wrap up. You've been terrific today. So there's been a lot of discussion about the health of bureaucracies. If, if there is a new president, what they're going to find, a lot of worries about the State Department, something KT and I have talked a lot about questions about some of the other organizations around government, not as much discussion about USTR. Help us understand, what is a new administration going to find there with it, with respect to capacity, morale, and the like? What does USTR as an institution look like right now?
2: Well, I think you're right. I think it's an institution that um, has clearly done well under the Trump administration. Number one, it's, you know, Ambassador Lighthizer is very influential with the president. So USTR has played a very important role in this administration. And particularly given in many ways, Trump's foreign policy has been trade policy. So trade has become so prominent. But I think, and you know, this is based on my 28 years of working there. It's an Incredible group of very professional, very capable, very hardworking, very dedicated folks. And you haven't seen a hemorrhage from USTR during the Trump years. So I think you're going to f- still find a really a group of very dedicated negotiators who also recognize that there's a lot of work they need to do domestically as well. But I think it's that's going to be, um, I think, a pleasant surprise for whoever comes in. And, you know, USTR is bringing in that next generation of trade negotiators, including a lot of women. I think that's very important. So um, I'm optimistic about the role of USTR, you know, going forward. But I think one of the challenges for USTR more and more will be the need and to coordinate and to, you know, both um, to be part of the domestic agenda, but also be part of the foreign policy agenda that USDR can't be cabined off because trade policy is so dependent now. I mean, it couldn't be any clearer that um, it goes hand in hand with good domestic policy and it goes hand in hand with good foreign policy. And so whoever comes into the White House as a result of this presidential election, I think it's imperative they find a way to really integrate all of these all of this policy making in a much better and more effective way than in the past.
0: Wendy you've been terrific really interesting answers really out there helping us understand what the challenges have been and what the opportunities might or will be going forward. We really appreciate you spending some time with us today so thank you. KT.
1: Yeah, and thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to mention that you can access the full video of this recorded conversation with Wendy online on our website at theasiagroup.com. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much for joining us.